Will you pray with me? Father God, thank you for, for this morning. I thank you for an opportunity to gather in this space. Lord, we, we come in with, from many, many different places and many, diff- many, many different experiences and uh, things that happened last week or last year or last month. Uh, Lord, we want to just bring those all to you this morning. Lord, we want to, if, if they were exciting, joyful, life-giving times, we pray that we can celebrate with each other in those. Uh, Lord, if we come in with heavy hearts or, or burdens or feelings of insecurity or self-doubt, we pray that you meet us in those as well. Help us to see ourselves and each other through your eyes uh, in the way that you see each of us. God, as we, we approach your scripture this morning, as we, as we look at, uh, at your overarching big story, we pray that we can hear your words and voice in it, that uh, the words that we read aren't words that were written thousands of years ago, but words that are alive because your spirit's in them. Uh, we pray all these things in your name. Amen. Oh, it is so good to be back in this space. It, feel, it felt weird over the last season I've, I, with, with uh, how the year ended, right? It ended so strangely with the, the massive snowstorm, which you could barely even tell existed, uh, and then New Year's the week after that, uh, and now it just feels like we're back into a, the beginning of a new year. Uh, and so we're in a new year, a new season, and a new book we're going to be looking at as well. So if you were here with us through 2022, uh, we spent the year in the book of Matthew. Um, it was, in my opinion, I, I loved it. I heard from many of you, you did as well. Um, there are a number of different ways to read the Bible. Maybe you've experienced that. Um, some of us, we, we do like a plan, like how many of you have ever done like read the Bible in a year? Right? Have you done that before? Some of you have. That's one way to read scripture. And when you're doing that, you're, you're reading it relatively quickly uh, because you have to get on to your next checkpoint, right? It's a great way to read scripture, but... There's another way as well, which is what we did in Matthew last year, and and that's to take a longer time and look at all the different layers and details that come in each and every little section. And I've found every time I've done that, I've done that with a number of books over the years, that you realize that that you read it the first time and you get something out of it. You read it the second time and you realize there was a whole other layer underneath that. A third time and you realize how many different pieces actually fit together. And you start to see the beauty and the inspiration behind this beautiful book, that it's more than just simple stories, but stories that are intimately intertwined with other stories in the same book, but ultimately intertwined with other stories from different books by different authors written in different centuries. Uh, It's unreal. And so uh, we wanted to continue on that path this year, not with Matthew, uh, but with a whole new book as well. And so this book, where we're going this year for the year of 2023, uh, is actually all the way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, which leads to the obvious question, why Genesis? And before I answer that, though, um, throughout um, 2022, we mentioned already, we took seriously Jesus' commands to make disciples of all nations, which, again, is just essentially becoming more like him, Uh, continually taking the next step every day. Now, we realize that's an individual journey for many of us. We have our own personal faith, but we also realize it's not done alone. We do it together. And so we said through this whole path, uh, we said through this whole past year, there are parts of our faith that are really straightforward, uh, like Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, things like that. But it, when, it, that, when it comes to walking that out day by day, uh, it can be incredibly confusing, difficult, right? It's complex. There's things we have to wrestle with to figure out what's the best way to flourish, which is why we come together in this space, right? Why do we do church? Actually, it's interesting. I've, over the past couple of weeks, I've had different people ask me that question. Like, what's the point of this space? 
<clears throat> and it, we, we don't come to church because it makes, us, makes God love us more or because it's the thing we have to do to somehow get to heaven someday or something like that. Now, maybe there are some of you who grew up in a tradition like that. Maybe some of you are even here today because of a feeling of, of guilt or that you need to because otherwise God might zap you or something like that. Uh, if you're here this morning for those reasons, we're glad you're here. Uh, but that's not why we want you to come, right? We come to church uh, because we realize that if we're going to find our way back to God, which is the mission of Harbor Churches, the mission of Harbor Life, uh, we can't do it alone. Uh, because the, in order to wrestle through the complex difficult situations in this world, we need each other. We need to be able to bounce our, our, our hearings from God off each other because like Jeremy said, it doesn't just come in an email with all the checkpoints that we need. Jeremy needs to, if he's here and like, this thing doesn't seem to be going away. Brent, do you think this might be what God's trying to tell me? That's how faith life works. That's why we gather together in this space so that we can do this thing together and wrestle with what all those things look like. So then after reflecting on a year in Matthew, we realized it might, um, <clears throat> that, that if we're going to go into Genesis, we want to give you some tools to be able to do those things well together. And so we've actually produced a resource this year. Um, it, it turned out amazingly well. I, um, I'm so happy with it. Um, it's, it. It's a devotional companion to the book of Genesis. So as you're working your way through, it's it's hearty, right? It's got something for every single day. It's fantastic for family devotion time, if that's something that you do. Um, uh, each, each day, there's a short devotional on uh, a piece of scripture to read. Read this section of Genesis. It kind of will companion along with where we are in Genesis for this year. I'll give you a short, brief insight onto what that passage is saying. Uh, here, it, and when I mean short, I mean a short paragraph, right? This is one day. Um, and then a question to ask, right? A great time for, for to talk, if you're on the table, it's great. It can be, the questions are designed in a way that if you're with a group of adults, you can ask that question. But also, if you're there with your kids, uh, they'll be able to answer too. Now your answer complexity might be a little different, but it works in both situations. And so we, we wanna encourage you to consider taking this with you. We've got some in back. Now I will say a, a little disclaimer here. Um, we underestimated how many of these we would need. Um, we've never done something like this before, and there's a cost associated with it, so we under-ordered our first order, and so we want to apologize for that. So we only have 10 of these right now, but there are more on the way. So if you want one today, uh, there are 10 in the back. Actually, there are nine in the back because there's one right here. Um, and, uh, but then we will order more. If you, wish, if, if you try to go back there and there aren't any, uh, put your name down on a, on a paper back there, and we'll make sure to get you one soon. Um, the, the new ones are on the way. Also want to just say, they are free for you to take home. However, they do have, like I mentioned, there's a cost associated with them. Each book costs us about $10. Um, if you could help us cover that cost, greatly appreciated, right? So again, take it if you, take it if you need it. Uh, if, you, if you're able to, um, please help us cover the cost of your book. That would be, that would be really helpful for us um, as a church. So uh, this is, these are available to you. Encourage you to take a look at them. Um, and uh, if, you, if, if, you want, if you're going to use them this week, take one now. If you're like, I probably won't have time to use it this week, can wait till next week, then put your name down on the sheet and we'll make sure to get you one. All of that being said, that brings us back to where we started. We're going to spend another year in another book, but why would we choose Genesis? In a year focused on discipleship, on becoming more like Jesus, why do you go back to Genesis? Wouldn't it, be more, wouldn't it make more sense, and some people have already asked us this, wouldn't it make more sense to study another one of the Gospels, or maybe a book like Acts, which is the story of the apostles after the resurrection? 
Wouldn't that make more sense if we were going to have a year focused on discipleship? And that's what I want to look at for the rest of the morning this morning. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke 24. That's right, we're going to start our year in Genesis in Luke. So there we go. So quick, quick setting the stage for where, what's happening here in Luke when we get started. Uh, in, in history at this point, when, when Luke picks up the story, uh, Jesus has been crucified. He's been resurrected. It's like this actually happens on the day he re- resurrects. Mary has already seen him and told the apostles that she's seen him. And then we pick up this particular story. That, when it says, now on that same day, that's the day we're talking about. So Luke 24, verse 13. It says, now on that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. Now, before we move on, I just want to point out some really important details in this little section here. If you remember a month ago, we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. We said it took place during the Passover, which means there are Jews from all over the nation of Israel in Jerusalem at this particular time. We know that this whole thing was a big spectacle, too, because whenever Rome did crucifixions, they made sure people saw them. They were intimidation tactics. They weren't meant to be private or secret. They were meant to be big and on display so that you knew, don't mess with Rome. And so the whole city would have known what had taken place in Jerusalem on that particular day. Not only the whole city, most likely, but everyone around the city as well. Nothing about Roman executions were meant to be private or secret. And so these two men are walking home, talking about everything that they had seen in this last week, which, as we know, because we just finished Matthew, was a lot of different things going on. What we'll see, though, as well, is in the next few verses that they've also heard the story that Mary had told them about the tomb of Jesus being empty. We know that Mary had seen Jesus and went back to tell the disciples that she had seen him and that the tomb was empty, which matters for our story here because these two guys have heard that story, which we'll see when we finish reading, and they're still walking home, which means a few things. We'll know that we know from what we're going to read in a minute, they believe the body of Jesus has been stolen. But it also, they must have serious doubts about the resurrection, or they would have stayed. For them, it's over. They had, what they had hoped had happened didn't. So it's time to go home. And we keep going. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they, kept from rec- they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk alone? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened in these days? Like, he can't believe that he wouldn't have known, right? Again, the whole city knows. What things, Jesus asked, or he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all his people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they'd seen a vision of angels and said that he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but did not see him. He said to them, How foolish are you, and how slow to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things, then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, this is a fascinating story. 
Because we have two guys who are walking down the road to Emmaus who believe the whole thing is over. And Jesus meets them on the way. And, and they, they tell him the story that they had just experienced at the end of Jesus' life. Now, Jesus is going to take some time, though, to retell them his story so that they understand why all of these different things happened. But what I think is so interesting about this particular story is that when Jesus is going to tell his life story, maybe we'll start it this way. If I was going to tell you my life story, where would I begin? Maybe I would begin with my father. If I, like, hey, my dad was grown here. Maybe, maybe I'd, I'd start with my grandfather, right? Like, my, par- my grandparents came from the Netherlands. I'm, a, I'm almost purebred Dutch, so there's that. Now you know. Maybe I go back that far, but most likely I start with, hey, I was born in Grand Rapids, right? If I'm going to tell you my story, that's where I go. But that's not what Jesus does when he tells his story, is it? When Jesus begins telling his story, he goes much, much further back. And actually, the scripture tells us that he goes all the way back to Moses and the prophets. Now, the prophets are, are basically what he's saying is if you want to understand me and how this whole story works, you have to understand the prophets, right? Which is those guys at the end of the Old Testament that are probably, I think, for many of us, the most difficult parts of scripture to understand. I'm with you on that, actually. But he doesn't start with the prophets either. He starts with, with what he says is Moses and the prophets. Now, maybe you're thinking when you hear that, well, the story of Moses is told in the second book of the Bible. It's told in the book of Exodus, right? But that's not what Jesus is meaning to communicate here. Uh, in Exodus, we, we get the story of Moses, and he climbs up a mountain known as Mount Sinai, where, where he meets God, and there he writes down the words of God in a collection of books that become known as the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the book of Moses, or the law of Moses. It has all of those different names. That's what Jesus is referring to here. When he says it's what was written in, the, in Moses and the prophets, he's not talking about the story of Moses. He's talking about the book or collection or the Torah. He's talking about the books of Moses. So essentially what he's saying is if you're going to understand me, you need to understand the Torah, which begins in Genesis. So in other words, when Jesus is telling his story, he doesn't begin with his birth. He doesn't begin with Christmas. He begins with Genesis. So Jesus himself is suggesting that if we're going to understand him, we need to understand Genesis, which is interesting. <clears throat> though, <clears throat> in my, though, in my opinion, Jesus' argument would be the most compelling uh, reason to start in Genesis. He's not the only person that points us there. This isn't a unique incident in the New Testament. John, for instance. In the Gospel of John, he starts his Christmas story in a very, very strange way. And the Gospel of John starts like this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. In the beginning was the Word, which is a very strange Christmas story. We don't often read it during Christmas time, do we? Because uh, it, it doesn't resonate in the same kind of way. But the words that he used were extremely purposeful. It wouldn't have been lost on any Old Testament scholar at all. Uh, it's not lost on many English speakers, actually, right? Because the, the phrasing that John begins with, in the beginning, isn't the first time we've seen the words in the beginning. Actually, 
The first time that we see the words in the beginning was in the beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. It's not a very subtle nod, is it? It's directly pointing us. If John is saying, if we're going to begin the story of Jesus, you need to begin it in Genesis. You need to understand that in the beginning, Jesus was there as well. John points us back to Genesis uh, when he begins the story of Jesus. Jesus points us there, John points us there, but he is not the only one either. Matthew. It's been almost 13 months since we started Matthew, uh, but do you remember how Matthew starts? We do have a more traditional Christmas story in Matthew, but that actually takes place second. The book of Matthew begins with a genealogy. It begins with a, with a history of, of, of Jesus' lineage. And that genealogy begins with a man named Abraham, whose story is found in the book of Genesis. Matthew opens by pushing us back to Genesis as well. So we have Jesus, we have John, we have Matthew. They all point us back to Genesis, and we can keep going. Luke does the same thing. Now, Luke takes a little bit longer to get there, uh, but in Luke 3... Uh, right after the Christmas story, Luke gives us a traditional Christmas story first, but then right after that story, he also gives us a genealogy of Jesus, which starts with a man named Adam, whose story begins in the book of Genesis. So within the first three chapters of Luke, he's pointing us back to Genesis as well. So we have Jesus, we have John, we have Matthew, we have Luke. One more? Right, I get it, I'm overkilling the point, but we'll do one more. Paul. Paul was one of the greatest Christian missionaries who ever lived. In Acts 17, Paul meets a group of people who had never heard the name of Jesus before. And so Paul's going to share the Jesus story with them. Let's look where he starts. Acts 17, 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if, need, if, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. The very first words of Paul's missionary message are actually the story of Genesis. We have Jesus, John, Matthew, Luke, and Paul, all of which say if you're going to begin this understanding of who Jesus is and how you're going to be a disciple of him, you need to start not in Matthew, but in Genesis, at the beginning. If Jesus and all of the greatest apostles who have ever lived believe that if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, we need to start in Genesis, it might be a good place for our, us to start as well. But that does still leave us with one really important question. The question of why do they start in Genesis? And that's a question that I hope to gain an ever-deepening clarity on as we go through the book throughout this year. But I want to make a few opening suggestions for us. So the book of Genesis, as a whole, is a collection of stories. 
It, it's, it's, the, it's almost entirely narrative-driven. There are a few genealogies in there, which can be tough to read, but the vast majority of the book of Genesis are stories, uh, human stories, humans, deeply human stories. Right? Humans throughout time have communicated important truths to each other through the telling of stories. Because stories contain a certain kind of power, don't they? We, we heard it this morning when Jeremy shared his. Well, the reason we want people to come up here each week and tell their next step stories is because we realize that, that when, we, when we connect it to a human person, when we understand that somebody has gone through something, we can relate to it differently, right? It's different than if I just came up and taught or, or other things like that. When we tell our stories, they have an impact. And there's a reason for that. And I've said it here many times before, but repetition doesn't hurt. Humans, us, we, we approach truth in the world in a couple different ways. We understand what's real in this world in, in two primary ways, I think. We, we understand truths about the world in our mind, logical understandings of how things work. We understand, uh, we understand truth with our mind through, like I said, logical constructs like math or logic or proofs or things like that, right? Part of, that's part of how we understand God, too. That's why we have things called, like, that are called doctrine, right? If you want to, it's, for some of you, that's, those, those things, are, you're like, oh, I don't like any of that. But, but those things are important, right? Like we have, here's, our, here's what we believe and why. They're arguments, they're, they're logical proofs, they're, they're things like, I guess I like doctrine or confessions, things like that, that help us put structure or framework onto what we believe. For those of us who are primary, primarily logical thinkers, that we approach the world and truth through our minds, those things are very, very helpful. We need those things. But that's not the only way that we experience truth in this world. We also experience what's true in the world through what we experience or what we feel, right? Our emotions and our experience, though harder to express and more often abstract, are just as important, and I want you to hear me on that because we don't always give them the same credit, are just as important as our intellectual understanding of who or what, or who or how, who God is or how he interacts with this world. Emotional or experiential truth is expressed differently than logical truth, though. If you want to learn logical truth, you pick up a textbook. They teach you those particular things. Here's how this works. And those are great. If you're looking for a biblical example of that, it's more like the book of Romans. Now, none of these are mutually, like they're not only one thing or another, but if you're looking for a more logical approach, a more uh, intellectual approach to, scripture, or to, to faith, the book of Romans is a good place to start. But the whole Bible isn't written like the book of Romans. Textbooks express intellectual truth. Does anybody know what expresses emotional truth? Song, right? If you ever wonder why we do both of these things on Sunday morning, we sing and we, and we do a, a message just because both of those things need to be present. We don't express emotional truth by writing it down in a textbook because it doesn't work that way. You get, right? there, there's a reason why we describe textbooks as things like, that, are, that are kind of cold, right? That, that makes sense to most of you, right? We don't express emotional truth through, through things like a textbook. We express them through song. We love song. We, no, how many of you uh, go to listen to music so that you can think about things really well? No, right? We, most of you go listen to music so you can stop thinking and get in your feels, right? 
Now, I understand, again, it's not always just one or the other, but most of the time, if I'm going to go flip on some music, it's because I want to stop thinking and just be present or feel for a little bit, right? We express emotional truth through things like textbooks, and we express, or sorry, we express intellectual truth through things like textbooks, and we express emotional truth through things like song. That's why we have both parts in our Sunday morning service as well. With that in mind, we do realize that part of our scripture is written like Romans. But have you ever noticed how much poetry is in the Bible? A whole bunch, right? We have a whole book of Psalms. Uh, we have, uh, tons of the prophets are expressed in poetry. We have poetry all over the place. And it's because even in scripture, we realize that we need to interact with God in both of these ways. Neither is more important. Both are necessary in balance to, to gain the best understanding of who God is. And... That brings us back to stories. Because stories, real human stories, are special because they dance the line between those two understandings of what's true, right? When somebody tells us a compelling story about ourselves, we learn some things about what happened or what's going on or how the world works. But we also learn some things, don't we? About who someone is and how they relate to the world and how that relates to us. A good story will engage both parts. It'll make you think, but more than that, it'll make you feel things. A great movie does both of those, right? A story that you want to watch over and over and over again will make you both feel and think. If it only does one and not the other, it might still be interesting, but it doesn't capture you in the same way. Genesis, as we'll see in this year, is jam-packed with stories that will make you dance that dance. If you take it seriously, Genesis will make you think. Actually, there are going to be parts of it that are going to hurt your brain because they hurt my brain. And I'm not 100% sure how it all fits together in that way because you're like, what are you doing here, God? Or if you lean into that, you're going to learn some things about God you've never seen before. If you ask yourself questions like, why would God tell that particular story? Or why would he tell that story like that? What is he trying to communicate? How is it related to history or archaeology? Right, we'll dance with some of those things. Or understanding of how the world works. And we're going to have to wrestle with all of those things intellectually. Genesis will bring us some intellectual challenges. And it's meant to. It's meant to put us into a space where we're going to have to wrestle with those things. It's going to engage our minds. But Genesis will be more than that as well. If you read through the book of Genesis, it's going to make you feel some things. Some of them are going to be pleasant. You're going to be excited, awed, filled with joy and peace. Hopefully many of them. But I'll, I'll let you know that what makes Genesis so powerful, in my opinion, is that it doesn't restrict itself to just positive experiences. What we're going to see this year is that in this particular book, there are some really hard things, some really hard stories that we're going to have to wrestle with. Stories that are going to make you feel. You might feel sadness, despair, anger, some of them rage even. My guess is some of the stories might be triggers. I know some of them are for me. You're like, I, this one bugs me, right? But I want to encourage you to engage with those things as well. Because as hard as those stories are, they're real, aren't they? Because Genesis contains stories of loss. 
We're gonna see stories of miscarriages in Genesis. See, I know some of you who've experienced that pain. Actually, Jen and I have experienced that pain. It's a pain that so often goes without being talked about. That's really, really difficult because as you go through it, it's just really hard. Those stories are in Genesis. And so we realize that, that they were happening then, they'll happen now, and, and that brings up emotion, doesn't it? If you've been in that space, you know how that feels. How do you grieve a child you never met? Something I've wrestled with, I know Jen has too, right? Those stories are in Genesis. You can't help but read them and feel. Genesis contains stories of child loss, right? Which is a pain that I got to imagine. I, I, miscarriage hurts, and I got to imagine if I, you, uh, the child loss is, is even more intense in some ways. I can't imagine what that would be like. And some of you know that too. Genesis contains stories of abuse, physical abuse, people being hurt or beaten, sexual abuse. Those stories are in Genesis. Actually, according to the CDC, over half of all women have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact in their lifetime. Over half. That's that alone, as a father of daughters, both brings me to tears and fills me with rage, right? Maybe some of you also feel like that as well. It's not okay, but it also means that we sit among people who've experienced that as well. That story is their story. Genesis contains stories of family brokenness. Families that hold hatred towards one another and can't find a way to reconcile. We just finished a holiday season in which I know a lot of you, myself included, have come face to face with that family brokenness. Where you're trying to figure out how do we figure this thing out and get along again? Maybe there's a family member who's estranged or something like that. We see those things in Genesis as well. So why Genesis? Because at its core, it's a book of stories, powerful human stories, brutally honest human stories, sometimes painfully honest human stories. Stories of doubt, of loss, of trial, of tribulation, of struggle and wrestle, of dysfunction and pain, of brokenness and trouble, all, it, all of that is right there in Genesis. But that's not it. Through all those stories, what we see is we see God. We see God in those, in those experiences, we're going to see God. God with us. Genesis does reveal some of the hardest parts of our human existence. But it also will continually show us how much God cares for us in all of it. God shows us in Genesis that, yes, he's all-powerful. He's powerful enough to topple nations, restore justice, and bring the dead back to life, but he's also immensely personal. He meets us in it. I actually love this quote from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which says this. By placing the stories of Genesis before the book of Exodus, with its story of the birth of the Israelites as a nation, the Torah is, impl is implicitly telling us of the the, the, the primacy of the, person, of, oh, of the personal over the political. Exodus is about the big themes, slavery, freedom, miracles, and deliverance, the rescue of an entire people from oppression, and their wondrous journey through the sea and, the, and, and wilderness. It's about law and liberty and justice and the nature of, nature of Israel as a nation under the sovereignty of God. 
But by focusing first on individuals and their relationships, Genesis reminds us of the complexity of the human heart with no political order in and of itself can resolve. If we, can't, <clears throat> if we cannot create peace or justice or compassion within the, within the family, we will be unable to do, it, do so within the nation or the world. What I take from that is when we ask the question, why Genesis? The answer is because where we start the story matters. And we even see that within the book of Genesis itself. Now, I grew up in a Christian tradition that chose to emphasize the brokenness of humanity. Um, the tradition I grew up in, we used a little acronym to describe the different points of faith. It was the acronym TULIP. Anybody know that one? Can anyone recite it? You get extra Harbor bonus points if you can. Do you know all five points? I know you can, Eric. I believe you. <laughs> well, it's, it's the five points of Calvinism, if you ever want to remember that easily. It's tulip, which is a good Dutch flower, so good. <laughs> well, anyway, <laughs> the T in tulip stands for total depravity, right? Um, now, to be, to, to, what total depravity is, is this understanding that we're all broken, uh, uh, totally depraved people, that, we, that, we, that we're sinful people that need, that need God a lot. Now, to be clear, I get where that's coming from, right? Humans, we just, we just mentioned the stat about violence, right? Humans, us, we're, we're, we're particularly spectacular at being awful to one another. It's, it's true. We can see it all over the world. And so this emphasis makes sense, and there's a truth in it. We are fallen beings that need God. Left to our own, we are excellent at creating chaos and disorder. I fully agree with that. We've just talked about how that's been that way since the beginning, but is that really the beginning of the entire story? I would argue that if we only focus on total depravity, if we only focus on our brokenness, we're actually starting our story in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is important. We are broken. We just said that. But the Bible doesn't start at Genesis 3, does it? Now, I understand there's a time and a place to address human pride, to address us thinking about ourselves higher than we ought, and we do that often. But I would also feel safe to guess that there are many of you out there today that don't need to be taken down a notch. Some of you maybe, well then, good, lean into that. But there are, I'd be willing to guess there are plenty of us who wrestle with constant thoughts, not of being better than we think we are, but being less than we think we are. We wrestle with thoughts of being worthless or less than or not good enough. I would feel safe saying there are plenty of us out there who never feel like we can measure up or amount to anything, who don't really need to be told they're totally depraved because they know it. And they know it. Yeah? To those of you who are living in that space, I want you to know that Genesis doesn't start at chapter 3. It doesn't start at the fall. It starts with a declaration of you being, it starts in Genesis 1 with a declaration of you being made in the image of God. It starts in Genesis 1 with God's declaration on day 6. So every single day, God, there's evening and there's morning, and God says it's good. 
Days one through five, he ends the day by saying, it's good. Day six, he creates humanity, and the day ends, and he says, it's very good. Genesis 1 starts in a place in which you were created in the image of God with a declaration that things are very good. Where you start matters. If you believe that you are so broken, there is no hope. If you believe that you are worthless or valueless, if you believe that you are scum, it will shape the way you read Scripture, and it will shape the way you live. On the other hand, if you believe that at, you, at your core you are, intentionally, you are an intentionally created image bearer of God, who is, so lo- who, is so, who is loved and capable of amazing amount of goods through Je- good through Jesus, everything changes. Sure, we all wrestle with real life struggles. All of us do. We make mistakes, big and small, and that matters. We've talked about that before too. But that's where we are, not where we started. Where we start matters. All throughout the New Testament, in Jesus' words and the apostles, we're described as children of God, adopted into his family. And where we start in Scripture fundamentally shapes our understanding of that metaphor. If we start in Genesis 3 as horrible, worthless creatures, we then spend our entire lives just trying and hoping to be good enough for God. And my guess is some of your faith lives look like that. Sure, we're children, but, we're, but we focus on the, our brokenness in the adoption. And as a result, we spend our entire lives trying to prove to ourselves and to God we're worthy of that. And my guess is there are many of us in our faith lives who that's how it's been. This constant feeling of guilt of falling short and God must think horribly of us over and over and over and over and over again that we're never actually going to make it into his full presence because of all the crummy things that we're doing now or have done in the past. If we start at Genesis 3, that shapes how we live in that space. But the Bible doesn't start in Genesis 3. Genesis 1 suggests that God sees you, sees you the way that he made you, sees your core, and loves you deeply. If we start there... We're loved because we are created in God's image. We love because we are. We're loved because we are, because we exist. And that shapes everything moving forward from that space. The metaphor of being adopted into Jesus' family talks, feels entirely different. We can actually relate to it compared to our own families a little bit more. Do any of you love your children because they've proven themselves worthy? or your grandkids, or nieces, nephews, whatever it may be. Do you love children because they've proven themselves worthy? If that was the case, we'd have a lot of kids living outside. (laughs) Let's just be honest about that, right? I love my kids to death, and I, I mean, I don't know, right? Some days. No, we don't love them because they've proven themselves worthy. We love them because they're our children, right? Or our nieces, nephews, grandchildren, whatever. It shapes the rest, too. Do you guide children to test to see whether they're going to make the cut or not? Right? We don't do that. Do you discipline them out of some kind of sadistic joy or punishment? No, right? Or 
Do you discipline them or guide them in the hope that they will become the greatest versions of themselves possible? Now, imperfectly, of course. But my guess is at the core of all parents, aunts, uncles, grandparents, that's our goal, right? That we, we correct them, we guide them, we teach them. Not to test them to see if they're worthy or good enough, not to make sure they can measure up to a standard, but instead to help guide them into being flourishing adults. Why do I talk to my kids about lying? Is it because I'm not going to love them if they do? No, it's because I hope that, I know that if they lie going into adulthood, it's going to hurt them in the long term. That it's going to cause trouble and pain and hardship for them, and I don't want that for them. Where we start the story matters. How we see God's interaction with us matters. If we start in Genesis 3, it shapes the way we're going to read rest of Scripture. We're going to be constantly chasing to see if we're good enough for God. We're not. Unless we start in Genesis 1, in which he says, you are because I made you, and I love you. You can't measure up to who I am in that perfection, but you don't have to, because I love you because you're my child. I love you because you're created in my image. I love you because you have inherent worth and value. And so I correct you and guide you and teach you because I want to see you flourish into that value I created you to have. So why Genesis? Because Genesis tells us the story of humanity, both good and bad. Because Genesis is where God started his story. And so we start there too because where we start our story matters. And so we're going to spend this next year working through some really difficult stories. We're going to wrestle with some things. We're going, to, we're going to think about some things. We're going to feel some things. We're going to have to work together to try to figure out how all these pieces come together, some of which we're going to be able to put together nicely and some of which we're going to have to wrestle with for this year, for, a year, for years to come, however it might be. Which is why it's so important in 2023 that we do it together. Because the stories that we hear in Genesis are going to relate to the stories that we've experienced in our lives. And the more that we share those with each other, the more we're going to get to know each other. And the more we're going to get to know God, both in our heads and our hearts. The more that we will grow as disciples, personally, and in a way that can share that with the rest of the world around us. So we're going to kick off this series, and I love that it, that it happened this way. We're going to, we kick off our series today with communion, with the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a beautiful place because, it put, because as we've seen in the New Testament, Jesus starts the story in Genesis. Paul, Matthew, Luke, John all push us back to the beginning, to the declaration that you are so loved that while you were still sinners— at just the right time, Christ came and died for you, that he came to you, because, not because we had figured it out, but precisely because we had not. Jesus starts his story in Genesis 1 and says that you have failed consistently throughout history, and I will come anyway, because we start at Genesis 1, not Genesis 3. And so when we come to the table, we remember that, that God loves us deeply, And what I love about the table is that it's a, it's a visual and physical reminder of that truth. But it's more than that. Because it's a shared table. It's a table that we come together as a body of believers 
to say that we do this life journey together as broken individuals who are trying to find what flourishing looks like. We come to the table to, to be assured of God's love for us, and then out of that, we come together so that we can express it to each other. Communion is the practice of admitting to ourselves that we all have brokenness in our lives, and the declaration that we need Christ in the midst of all that. And it's the declaration that we need each other. Each of us has fallen short in one way or another, but the table reminds us that our brokenness isn't what defines us in Christ. It, defines, it, it reminds us that, that Christ has defeated death, and because of that, it's no longer our master. So in just a few minutes, I'm going to invite you to come forward. You can take a piece of bread. You can take a cup. Go back to your seats and reflect on the things we've talked about today, where, the, that, where you fit into this story. Or maybe reflect on God's love for you or how you can interact with it with the people around you. So our table is open to anyone. Uh, a community is an invitation to affirm or reaffirm our acceptance of Christ's gift in our lives. And so it's open to anyone who wants to accept that, the gift of Christ's love uh, today for the first time or already has in the past. And so as you come to the table, we realize that in the word, uh, words of Paul in Colossians, that at the table there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, and I love the way that says this, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, we start in Genesis 1. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since members of one body you were called to peace and be thankful. I hear these words from Luke 22, 14 through 20. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning has been fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He said, take, and take this and share it amongst yourselves, for I will not drink wine again until the kingdom of God has come. He took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. When you eat it, remember my gift to you. Likewise, when he took the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you, a sign of the new covenant. When you drink it, remember me. Will you pray with me? Father God, we realize that all of us have brokenness in our lives. We have stories that have affected who we are and, and how we see ourselves. We all, we all come, we all, we, none of us make it through this world unscathed. We all have pain or hurts. We all have done damage to ourselves or other people around us. Lord, we realize we are broken people who need you. We realize that we're capable of immense amount of pain and destruction and hurt towards each other. 
Lord, we do pray that we take that seriously, that that's not something we, we take flippantly or blow off, that that matters and that's something that we have to work out. But Lord, we pray today specifically that we're able to start our stories in Genesis 1, that we're able to shed all of the baggage that we have and that we're able to see ourselves through your eyes. That we can start in Genesis 1 and realize that even though we are as flawed as we just admitted we are, that you still see us and love us like children. Lord, we pray that you allow that truth to sink deep into our hearts. And then Lord, we wanna pray that you give us eyes for each other as well, to realize that that same truth applies to each and every person in this room so that we, and help us to see them that way too. We pray that you help us to see ourselves through your eyes and we pray that you help us to see each other through your eyes as well. Not so that we can just be satisfied with the brokenness that we are in, but so that we can be motivated and encouraged to continue to take steps in our lives to work away from the brokenness that we experience and into the fullness of life that you desire for us, just as we desire it for our own children. Amen.